This is an ABC podcast. Have you ever felt like you've had to repress a whole part of yourself at work or in your family? Well, the stories these two frank, fearless spirits are sharing might just be a catalyst for change. There's this culture of silence and invisibility within the sciences. There's this sense of, you know, leave that at the door. You're a scientist here, leave everything else at the door. Hey, it's Natasha Mitchell with the World Pride Festival edition of Science Friction, all about finding your authentic self and why that really matters for queer scientists. So scientists who identify as LGBTIQA+. In fact, why it matters full stop, really, whether you're a scientist or not, because feeling your way into your whole self feels kind of good, right? Growing up, before I was a scientist, you know, I would have people from the church, for example, say, sure, you believe in science, but, you know, where in nature does homosexuality exist? Rami Mando, who has a pretty wild story to tell about leaping from his seasoned career in business and finance to astrophysics, as you do. We're going to come to that. But science lit the way for Rami as he started to understand he was gay. It wasn't until I was older that I was able to, and, you know, the internet developed, that I was able to access information and see that there are at least 1,500 species in which homosexuality presents itself across the animal kingdom. There are species in which homosexual long-term relationships are built and maintained, monogamous relationships are maintained for life across the animal kingdom. How powerful was that? Oh, incredibly huge, because then I could then take that to inform people, hey, What you've been told is what I was told, and it was a blatant lie because, look, here's some science data and it tells the truth. Kim Kwan remembers the day back in 2019 when they walked into a room that changed their life. I just walked into this auditorium Mm. and sat down and looked around and realised that there were over 100 other queer scientists just like me in the same room. It was the first ever national LGBTIQA plus in Science Day held in Melbourne. And the feeling that day was nothing like Kim had felt before. Feeling whole. I think that's a big one. Feeling like I could be my whole self without needing to mask or hide any aspect of myself. It's the sense of, oh, there are other people like me and that have achieved success and are established in their field and are doing amazing things in science. And knowing that means that, oh, there is a path for me. There are people experiencing maybe the same experiences that I'm feeling or I'm in a group and I'm the only person who's queer and I'm not, I'm afraid to come out in my lab group because I'm afraid that of the consequences on my career, what will people think of me and whether that will impact my success as a scientist. And that is a feeling that I don't think people can conceptualise until they've experienced it. It's something that I didn't even realise I needed until I was there. Kim Kwan is a chemist and science communicator and has just stepped into the role of inaugural project manager with Queers in Science. It's an Australian network celebrating and promoting the visibility of queer scientists. There is this don't ask, don't tell kind of mentality where you just, you don't bring it up and they don't realise that invisibility has a massive impact on queer researchers. We focus on the science and we remove the focus on the people doing the science. 
they don't realise that having no visible role models means that they can't find a path forward, that they can't see themselves succeed in science. The typical image of a scientist is the uh, the old white guy with a lab coat, right? It, it drives me crazy. And so if you're a young kid from Fairfield with an Assyrian background and, you know, you're looking out to the world and looking to see if there are other queer people out there doing great with their lives and, you know, progressing along their lives and even after they've come out and, and they're very openly queer, then that's a, that's a shining beacon to a lot of, our, lot of those folks. Rami was that young kid growing up in Fairfield in Western Sydney. His parents moved to Australia when he was just about three months old. So my culture and background is something called Assyrian. It starts with an A. So not from the country Syria, but from an ancient civilization called Mesopotamia and Samaria, which is now, you know, what is now Iraq. The Assyrians are Iraqi Christians. Many have had to flee Iraq to escape war and persecution. And Rami grew up in a strict religious community in Western Sydney. So coming out in his teens was rife with risk. It was really hard because we don't really sort of talk about that kind of stuff. And in fact, it's kind of shamed by the community or looked down upon or rejected or exiled. People from my cultural background who identify as part of the LGBTIQA plus community often come out later in life or often are very more repressed or have issues or even trauma from their experiences of being part of our community and being suppressed under a different cultural or religious blanket, I guess because there's such a strong church presence. But the feelings welling up for Rami conflicted with what he was being taught at Sunday school. I just knew deep down inside that I was attracted to males from a very young age. The signs for me, I guess, were even even as a kid, even before I was a teenager, I was like, Mm. you know, I, I, I went out of my way to learn the words to every Madonna song that there was. And I know that's very cliche, but I just, I just loved it. Yeah. Being queer is definitely something that created barriers between me and other members of my family. Like Rami, Kim experienced hostility at home when they started to understand they were queer. Kim is first-generation Australian with parents from Hong Kong. I first realised or had any sense that I was queer when I was 12. But, of course, societal expectations and pressures and beliefs and prejudices meant that I ignored it, pushed it down, pretended it didn't exist for years. As I like to say, I was so far in the closet, I'd reach Narnia. When you are taught the messages of being queer, being wrong, and you're a kid, you internalise them, you don't question them. And then that grows, it's a seed that's planted. um, And that grows and that festers into shame and, and guilt and fear. And that is probably the main thing that was responsible for a lot of the suffering that I had when I was a kid with my identity. And then when I was 15, yeah, I was like, okay, I can't deny this anymore. And that's that's actually not the relief points because suddenly you have to actually face it. You have to deal mm. with it, mm. deal with that reality. And that was really challenging. That year after that was one of the hardest years of my life, I would say. But I was very lucky. One of my best friends at the time came from an environment that that wasn't an issue. And so she was the first person I came out to and that made a big difference for me. Honestly, saved my life. But really it was after high school, first year uni, that I was like, okay, 
I'm in a different environment now. The world is bigger now. There was a queer group at the uni. Oh, okay, maybe this is, I can, I can come out. Rami Mando also came out as gay initially to his schoolmates. So then we started going out to bars and clubs and, and so I started meeting other gay people who were already out and thriving in their jobs, in their families. And I was like, oh, wow, that's quite interesting. And people are really happy with who they are. And that was a bit of a uh, shock to me because I thought that when you would come out, you'd lose your family and you'd lose your job or whatever it may be. And, and you'd be quite sad and lonely. But people were happy and people were thriving and people were doing great. And I was like, this is incredible fantastic. Incredible feeling. Must have felt incredible to see that. Yeah, absolutely. That possibility. Yeah. It, was, it was a game changer and an eye opener. After telling his close high school friends, Rami then came out to different women in his family who he felt safer to tell. It was really tough. He had to pull away from his wider Assyrian community. And that disconnect continues to this day. And it took time for him to fully reconnect with his family. It's complex. Being a queer person of colour is full of contradictions. You have the messages that come from all different angles, from the Western society that I grew up here, imposed by family and the more uh, collectivist viewpoint as opposed to individual individualists. So that capacity to sort of self-realise yes. your own queer identity... Yes, exactly. ..is even more complicated in um, some sense. Exactly. And what does that mean for family? What does that mean for relationships within your family and to other people? And also, you know, religion comes into it as well. There's stigma and discrimination and prejudice from that angle. And so, yeah, it's, it's a complex mix of different expectations of what you should be, uh, what you should do with your life. And being queer, sort of, it's sure, it's only one aspect of my personality and my identity, but it's an important one and it filters through my relationships and how I engage with the world. And it's strange trying to navigate this in-between. And I think a lot of first-generation people have had to forge this middle path between what their parents' culture and life experiences and expectations are and what they want to achieve with their life. Kim, as you were finding your queer science tribe, you were also finding the yellow kitties. Yeah. I had zero connection to Chinese culture. I don't speak another language. And so I realised I was so disconnected from it but I did want to be connected to it. And the reason I was disconnected from it is because I don't have a good relationship with many of my family members. And so I sought out the connection elsewhere. And so I joined this um, group that is very niche. It's a very specific demographic. <laughs> it's for queer Asian women in Melbourne. Awesome. So it's a very small, specific group of people. But there's many Venn there's, diagrams yeah. right there overlapping. But there's a need for it. There's yeah. definitely a need for it. Um, there are experiences that they voice or they've echoed that I didn't realise other people experienced and that I couldn't find in other social circles. And I think it's been valuable to have all these groups around me, to have the Queers and Science Network, the Yellow Kitties group, and to meet as many people as I can among all those Venn diagrams. Kim Kwan had always had the sense that science was going to be at least one of their tribes. 
So I've always been interested in science, chemistry, physics, biology, all of it. I just like to figure out why things worked. Like you look around the, at the world and you're like, oh, why does that happen? Why does that happen? And I think all kids have that natural instinct of questioning why, like all parents know about the why phase, right? Mm. And I think it's unfortunate if that gets drilled out of them because of other, you know, expectations or pressures. So we had a terrible career advisor at high school. I remember saying I wanted to be a scientist or an astronomer. And they said to me that, look, it's probably not lucrative. There's probably not going to be much money in there. So you're better off going out and making money in finance or in corporate. And so as a young person who lives in Fairfield with uh, my parents had divorced a few years earlier. And so I wanted to support my mum. And I thought, okay, well, I should just go get a job that gives me money instead of following my passion. But at 38, you upend your life and, as you describe it, jump off a cliff professionally. So what was going on for you? What what were you feeling at the time? I had reached a point where I was encouraged to go for and had a bit of a nod to go for a directorship role because my director, who was right above me, had just left. And it was very lucrative. It was very, it seemed like a great role. It seemed like a great career move and the money was just fantastic. But then I just thought about it and I thought, if I actually take this job now, like I am never, ever, ever, ever going to walk away from it because it's going to be, the money's going to be great. I'll be in my comfort zone forever. I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll be accustomed to a certain kind of lifestyle. And so I went, nah, I've got, to, I've got to turn it down. And I dropped everything and I quit my job and my salary went from X amount to zero overnight. And um, <laughs> I became a full-time student doing my master's in astrophysics. That's so awesome. It was very scary. Yeah. So you create this substantial website for the Australian space community, spaceaustralia.com. You do a master's degree in astronomy. You're starting a PhD. I mean, clearly you don't do anything by half measure. And I wonder what it's been like effectively <laughs> starting again and finding... I guess your whole self in every sense of the word. Yeah, look, I mean, it's very tough to sort of start from scratch, but I set myself a goal that by the end of three years, I'll be working in the space industry as a researcher, as a scientist, or as whatever it may be. I was going to set myself a goal and I was going to achieve that goal. And so the way I approached that was to split my, I guess, my strategy in half. And one half was to build spaceaustralia.com and the other half was to follow my career passion, which was research astronomy and do my uh, master's degrees. By the end of these three years, I'm to run really hard for the next three years. And by the end of these three years, one of these two has to be successful. What I wasn't counting on is that they're both <laughs> going to be successful. And they, they both went really wild. And I was like, wow, okay. So it was, it was quite exhausting, but it gave me so much knowledge. Uh, it was fantastic, actually. I'm really happy about it. Now Rami is doing his PhD in astrophysics at Macquarie University. He's researching pulsars, these dense pulsating neutron stars left after the core of an exploding star called a supernova collapses inward and pulsars pulse. They act like a kind of ticking clock throughout the cosmos. Now, when one of them sort of goes a bit weird and starts ticking funny, and we're like, okay, that's kind of cool, that shouldn't be happening, so let's go check out what's going on over there. But if we see one of them sort of doing that, then the next one doing that, then the next one doing Ooh. that, and the next one, then something There's big is happening. Yeah, they're all connected. They're big all like this. what? Well, they're all showing this correlated signal, which actually indicates that we might be observing something called a gravitational wave. These gravitational waves are huge, and they're actually sort of passing through us all the time but we need these accurate, stable, ticking clocks to measure their their presence. So you're just a piggy mud, aren't you, <laughs> talking about this <laughs> stuff? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. totally joyous. Yeah. 
and helping more young queer people find that joy of science is one reason why Rami is speaking up in the Queers in Science movement. But also being fully out as a gay man frees him up to be fully into his science. Being myself and being open about who I am makes me feel like there's less weight on my shoulders, makes me feel like I don't have to watch my words and, you know, double take on everything in my mind before I say it. It allows me to be purely my passion and myself. And I think that's extremely important when we're sort of talking about science. People, when they hide and they feel they have to mask themselves at work, I don't think a lot of people understand how much energy that takes. Mm. And that is energy that could be better spent focusing on the science even just at the lunch break they filter the words that they say they they don't mention their partner or they don't talk about their personal lives and scientists think oh but personal lives aren't important but water cooler talk is so important building relationships is so important for building a healthy lab culture building a culture that thrives and that perpetuates onto good science When we actually have a person of credibility and a person of trustworthiness being a scientist, then it's fantastic when they actually also identify as queer because that means that people who are young people, part of a queer community, can also look up to them and say, hey, there's a person that people trust and there's a person with integrity and there's a person who people are relying on who also happens to be a queer person and therefore I can be that person when I grow up. So you can't be what you can't see and therefore... I want more people, if they're able to, uh, to become more openly about themselves and talk about their own identities and their own minorities and their own communities, along with being a scientist. Because, you know, scientists are humans and humans come from very different backgrounds. I remember when I was a woman doing engineering at uni and, and many women really didn't want to be differentiated as a woman. The vibe was, well, I'm no different from a man and I'm just as capable as a man, thank you very much. Don't other me as a woman in Mm. engineering or science or whatever. And I was sort of always kind of interested in the question of, well, what does being a woman and experiencing the world as a woman do to your science? Like what are the strengths that and insights that it brings to your capacity to do science rather than thinking about it of, in a sort of deficit way? And I, I wonder whether being queer, being a gay man informs the way you might do your science. Being queer, uh, for me in particular, I can't speak on behalf of everyone that's queer, but for me in particular, was give, I was given the opportunity of growing up queer um, and going to you know, queer clubs, for example, and bars and meeting a lot of bunch of people from different walks of life allowed me to see the world through a different perspective and a different lens. I think that's really important because I, when once I had broadened my horizons a little bit, it allowed me to sort of think about my science, especially when I came to science later in life and use those skills later in life uh, in sort of looking at my results, for example, and going, well, maybe that I can ask someone else about that and get someone else's perspective and someone else's view about that because I might be right, I might be wrong, I might have biases in my thinking, but I should actually sort of broaden my horizons on my data, on my results and my thinking to actually apply that to my science to get the best result. And it actually has worked a bit for me uh, really nicely, actually. I love that idea of challenging your own biases. Uh, There's this notion that scientists need to be objective and neutral and uh, dispassionate about your data. and But part of that is also developing the skill and the capacity to challenge your own biases. And sometimes scientists just simply don't see 
their biases because of the skin they're in, because of their life experience. A sort of narrow frame is necessary for sites, but can it also constrict the view? Yeah, totally. And look, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not 100% on this as well. And I don't think anyone can be. I think you're continually learning to challenge your own biases and to also put yourself in other people's shoes. And I think that's a, a very, very important tool that I've been able to carry over from, from my queer upbringing, I guess, you know, putting myself in other people's shoes and seeing how they would feel uh, for any sort of situation and then sort of thinking about that when it comes to my science as well. Studies have shown that teams are more productive. Creative innovative because of different perspectives, different ways of thinking, analysing, different approaches to something. If we all approached a problem the same way, we would not get anywhere. It'd be very narrow. You wouldn't really progress science without different perspectives, without new thinking. That's what science is. It's new thinking, new approaches, new analyses, new knowledge. And to do that, you need as many perspectives as you can. You know, for people who are listening who run a lab or run a scientific workplace and they take all sorts of forms, what would your advice be to them? What, where could they start if this is something that they've not thought about before? The resources are out there. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to start from scratch. So what I want everyone to do individually is look at their circle of influence, their work, the people around them. What can you do now, today, every day that can build inclusion in? And you start with small steps and you start with what you have right now. If you're an HR person, look into gender affirmation policies, whether you have gender transition leave. How can you perhaps raise this within your HR meeting? If you have interactions with the executive board or you're on one, how can you use your voice, your influence to make your institute better by having greater inclusion and welcoming in scientists who are queer and making them feel safe in your workplace? Using gender neutral language, that might not come naturally to you. I also grew up in the same society as the rest of you. I also had to learn these skills myself. I did not come into the world suddenly using gender-neutral language because society also taught me to use he or she. I had to also practice using they, them. Once you practice it, it becomes a habit. You don't think about it. It's a short-term energy expenditure for long-term gain that you don't have to worry about anymore because it's just built in. And this is what I mean, just building in everyday practices. We are going to continue to see queer people leave science if we do not create environments that are welcoming and inclusive for them. So in this week of World Pride, celebrating all things queer and uh, allies rallying to celebrate too, for those listening, Rami, what does a queer-friendly, queer-safe science lab or workplace or field research site, what does it look and feel like for you? Look, for me, it's somewhat, it's, it's a place where or a community or a group or a lab where uh, 
everyone there is accepted for who they are. You can be openly queer in any way, shape or form that you want and you can perform your science without any bias or reluctance and enjoy yourself. What it's not is somewhere where there are power structures that forbid people from, I guess, queer backgrounds to further progress their career who aren't given the opportunity to talk out much or to talk at meetings or who aren't given opportunities to sort of participate in first authorships in papers, for example, and an environment where microaggressions uh, occur and uh, sort of get, you know, swept under the rug. Rami, the joy of finding your queer tribe and your science tribe, you are living your best life right now, it strikes me. <laughs> Love it. Have a great time. Uh, happy World Pride. And thank you so much for joining me on Science Friction. That's okay. Thanks so much, Natasha. Great to talk to you. What's on your dance card for World Pride? You're heading to Sydney? Yes, I'm heading to Sydney. Along with hundreds of thousands of other people? Yeah, it's my first Mardi Gras. Let oh, alone big. So it was the first time I'm going to go there. Yeah, I've got a whole range of things I want to go to. As a whole human being, I want to go to both the queers and science things that are happening run by the Queers and Science New South Wales chapter, as well as some arts galleries and sports events and, yeah, just see what's go to the parade and see what's happening there. Lap it up. What are you going to wear? Oh, I haven't thought that far. <laughs> so I'm practical. I'll just... So I've got a Queer Science t-shirt, so maybe I'll rep that. Yeah. Big thanks to Kim Kwan, the new part-time project officer with Queers in Science across Australia. Check them out. And to Rami Mando from Macquarie University. Happy World Pride, y'all. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Science Friction is produced by me and Erica Voles, studio engineer for this episode, Matthew Crawford. Hey, don't forget to leave the show a review on your favourite podcast app or follow us on the ABC Listen app. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.